0: Good morning. Welcome to the Cowries and Rice Podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast, broadcasting from the heart of Global China Africa Research, Washington D.C. I am your host, Winslow Robertson, and I will be joined by the Mary, Dr. Nkenjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, you are having a party soon. Is that correct?
1: That is right. I am celebrating the year of my life that will begin in about a month or so. I am going back to Nigeria to get some field experience um, working in international development as well as expand some of my um, research, my personal research on China-Africa relations in Nigeria. And um, I will also be doing um, a year of national youth service in Nigeria, which is a requirement of the government with (laughs) a 21-day camp. that's pseudo-military, and I am not going to be... (laughs) that
0: okay also
1: at waking up at 5 a.m. to a bugle oh my
0: goodness 5 a.m. uh
1: every day every day
0: uh at least have a decency to wake up at six or seven. Five. Ooh.
1: well i mean that part i think i can get used to it and i just have to do it for three weeks the part that bothers me is um the drills and the training yeah yeah <laughs> People that know me very well will, are, are, are very well aware of the fact that I will not be good at at, at all.
0: <laughs> well, that, that sounds like quite an adventure, and, and I, I look forward to, to your party. I actually went to a uh, networking event yesterday, no, Friday, where Derek gave me a call, and at that network event, there was somebody else going to your party.
1: Oh, Wonderful.
0: So it should, be, it should be really cool. Evan, that dude, Evan, Evan Rowe. Yeah,
1: Evan Rowe.
0: Yeah. All right. Pushing on through, today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, Africa Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The form incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. And I'd like to point out that this is our 20th episode. Um, <laughs> which is a major milestone um, because, you know, we arbitrarily divide milestones by numbers divisible by 10 usually. So major milestone, I have a a little bit of baijo in my hand, and I'm going to just drink it straight from the bottle to celebrate that we've made it this far. We started back in August, and, you know, we haven't been taken out by assassins at the behest of other China-Africa uh, rivals, so, you know, we're doing okay. Mmm. Mmm. <laughs> ah, love this stuff. <laughs> um, and I, I would like to point out that I'm over 21, and it is almost noon, um, and, like, there's only, like, a really special thing, so, It's know, a
1: celebrity I- one.
0: Yes, exactly. All right. So it appears we are making the rounds with the hottest young China-Africa PhD scholars. Last week we enjoyed the stylings of uh, Liu Xiaonan, and now we're gonna talk to another dude I met at the African Studies Association annual meeting in Baltimore back in November of last year. Yes, basically I met a bunch of people there, and and I met uh, Xiaonan over there, and now I met this other guy. Mr. Derek Sheridan, an anthropology PhD student at Brown University, uh, Derek is studying Chinese migration in East Africa. He is interested in broader questions of transnationalism, migration, identity, um, and more. He also speaks Mandarin after putting in a, a few years in Taiwan. Derek, so happy to have you on.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Did you do anything with your wife for Spring Festival?
2: Well, um, I usually spend so much of my uh, vacation time just doing work, but last Sunday uh, we did go to someone's house to for a potluck for the New Year. She's actually part of a English study group here in Providence, and so they all met last Sunday. Um, it was a lot of fun. We spent the evening playing Chinese board games.
0: Gosh darn, that's 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 terrific. So what did you guys bring? Um, I can't, It's a dish that's made
2: out of made with pork and ginger. You have really
0: narrowed it down there. <laughs> it would include a lot of things, yes. Alright, well that, that, sound, that, sounds, that sounds lovely and sounds like a really cool group. Um, and as, as for yourself, how, how far along are you with your PhD? Uh, uh, you got anything cooking for the next ASA? Well, I'm at that
2: stage in um, my third year at the moment. And it's that stage right between applying for grants and beginning fieldwork or to put it more accurately, between applying for grants and then actually discovering whether one has actually received those grants. <laughs> and so I'm at, the, I'm at the purgatory stage of my uh, graduate education. But um, as for next year's ASA, I think I'm going to wait a few years until I have done my fieldwork, and then I will cook something up for the ASA. I, I went to the one in Baltimore last year primarily to – get a sense of the scene to you know, to learn more about what the kinds of conversations that were happening
0: well do you care to elaborate what did you find out on the kind of elaborate uh, conversations mm-hmm. that were happening well one of the
2: amazing it's funny because I actually went both to Baltimore and then before the ASA in Baltimore I went to Yale and at Yale the SSRC the Social Science Research Council Council had uh, set up a small conference on the politics of knowledge production in the study of China-Africa, Africa-China relations. And from both going to that conference as well as going to the ASA, one of the amazing things that I discovered was that there seemed to be a general consensus emerging among um, those scholars doing research that it's very difficult to talk about a China-Africa or Africa-China field as something distinct like an area studies in the same way we talk about, a field is having its own body of theory, its own body of approaches. Because when you actually look at it very closely, there are lots and lots of things happening that could be labeled or placed under the term China, Africa, Africa, China. So, for example, if you're studying um, Chinese oil development in Africa, it looks more like the politics of international oil development, more generally speaking. Looking at the experience of Chinese migration, it begins to look very similar to phenomena of Chinese migration in other places and in other times. But what is interesting is that even though that complexity, nuance, and diversity is more and more acknowledged by scholars doing this research, there's still a way in which it returns at the end of the day to this question of what is the significance of thinking about China and Africa in this way. Like the idea, as if the idea itself is so compelling that it, it it sort of absorbs all this complexity into it, and so we constantly see the same kinds of themes returning um, month after month with every new article, with especially within uh, within journalism, as, especially one sees these themes coming back, and so it's. What's quite fascinating to me is the relationship between how one goes about their research and how one understands things in a particular context, and then also engages with this fascination that people have with the idea of China and Africa as if it's something unprecedented. So it's um, I, I'm very interested in that relationship between sort
0: of the details on the ground and then the discourse about these details. Wow, that is the topic for another podcast unto itself, but we're not going to be talking about that all day, because <laughs> for today, Derek is going to talk about his research, the role of anthropology in Africa-China studies as discrete field, or whether it exists, and shout out to Miss Vivian Liu, who is, I think, our first anthropologist up on the show, and we're also going to discuss whatever else catches our fancy. Derek, what is your research about? How <laughs> and why did you choose this topic? Which, which question should I answer first? <laughs> Ooh, let's start with, a, start with about first and how and why.
2: Right. Well, what my research is about is in many ways related to what I was just saying about the politics of knowledge production. <laughs> well, what I mean by that is that one of the things that I'm interested in is sort of what you might call the, the everyday politics of knowledge production. And what I mean by that is the fact that differently situated <laughs> people from China, differently situated people in Africa who are having these interactions that are facilitated by the fact of Chinese African engagement, how are they negotiating and understanding what all this means on a day-to-day basis? And so more specifically, my what I plan to do for my uh, dissertation fieldwork is to spend time in uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, at a different sites of different Chinese businesses, so among um, wholesalers and retailers in Carriaco and at several Chinese factories where I made some contacts during preliminary research last summer and at some other Chinese businesses in the city and just sort of watch and sort of participate in these interactions as they unfold over time and to try to understand how people make sense of these things day to day. And what I mean by that is the way people um, act towards each other act towards each other, the way people treat each other and the way people talk about their experiences, the way people describe what it's like to get along in Tanzania or what it's like to get along with Chinese. And one finds an enormous amount of complexity as one moves among different people, whether one is coming in from a large Chinese company or whether one is coming and selling um, shoes as a wholesaler. And I'm just really interested in sort of looking at these different, pos- these different positions. On where people engage with each other, and the way that they themselves produce knowledge and commentary on China-Africa, because they themselves have opinions about what China-Africa means. And I'm kind of interested in listening to them, not as simply popular views, as it's usually spoken of, like we need to know more about what are popular views, but to sort of put their concerns into dialogue with the kinds of conversations that are happening among scholars. So I'm, I, have a very, I have a very strong commitment to the idea that people themselves um who are not scholars themselves make theory and commentary on a day-to-day basis and so that's kind of the motivating uh, motivation behind my research but one of the great things about doing ethnographic research is that there's space for things to change there's space to discover things that one was not expecting to find and so i'm hesitant to say what my how my research my how my research will turn out because one of the great things that i'm looking forward to is what i might discover that i had not anticipated
1: um, do you have a central hypothesis behind you?
2: I guess the driving driving
1: your reach and driving, for instance, your um, your methodology, or are you are you choosing to use a broader, more exploratory, um, I guess, way of examining this phenomenon?
2: Well, I mean one one of if one was to say that I have a hypothesis, so to speak, um it's I'm interested in how relationships that happen among many different axes, what I mean by that is between men and women, between um, older and younger people, between an employee and an employer, um, between people from different class backgrounds, how those relationships get um, interpreted in terms of being something that is inherent in something that's Chinese or Tanzanian, or whether they don't. And how one does that methodologically um, comes from being able to be in a situation where one can observe interactions between people and also be there as people talk about those interactions and then talk about those interactions with other people. And so, like, I have an idea of tracing tracing stories as as they develop. And part of the inspiration for thinking in this way came from preliminary kind of research I was doing before I I went to do a field trip last summer where I was looking at um, blogs that Chinese who have worked in places like Angola or Uganda would keep online in which they would talk about experiences they had and then interpret those experiences and then looking at the common threads Um, uh, people commenting both other Chinese who are working um, in Africa, uh, Chinese who are working elsewhere in the world and also um, friends and relatives back home making broader conclusions about China's place in the world based on how um, someone had an experience with say the police in a particular place. And it was interesting to me to sort of see how people generate these meanings from these interactions. And so part of what motivates me methodologically is being able to sort of be in a situation where I can both witness things occurring and also be there as people talk about those things, both to me and to each other. And so it's it's an it's an open-ended uh, methodology as ethnography usually is. But I'm but this is the way I'm I'm thinking
0: going in.
1: It's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's really, really, really darn cool. Um, uh, well, we going to get, get you back to talk about that stuff. Well, I, I want to ask a little more about the role of language. <clears throat> Excuse me, the the role of language. Last week, Shownan uh, explained the importance of of language for for research, and I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on, you know, what what tools does a scholar need to get the kind of research done that they want to do?
2: Yeah, I think this is a very, very important question. And I think, I, I remember having a conversation with Mike McGovern, um, an anthropologist at uh, Michigan, um, who did, was thinking of doing some work on China-Africa-related topics uh, a few years ago. And he was telling me how um, he really wishes that there was a fellowship or some means of support that would give um, scholars in this area the kind of linguistic training they really need to perform this kind of research. And what he meant by that was that those who come from a China studies background have Mandarin um, usually, but tend to be lacking in African languages. And by African languages, I don't just mean colonial languages like um, English or French or Portuguese, but um, other other languages like uh, Twi, Kizuhili, um Hausa, and many other languages that one would not normally be learning unless they were do- going to African studies, unless they themselves were not from the places where those languages were spoken. And he, what he wished was that the, this kind of fellowship would take those who had background, a background in Africa to spend a year in China learning Mandarin for a year. And those who had a background in Chinese studies or were from China would be able to spend a year in an African country where they're going to do their research. And so one has to, I think it depends a lot on one's background. One might come into this research having that linguistic background, which is a a great benefit. Um, For myself, having this Mandarin background is what encouraged me to think that I could do this kind of research. But um, in terms of, I'm um, bringing myself to proficiency in K- kiswahili This is something that I have to, I'm having to put together at the graduate level stage. And, uh, it's, and it's not impossible to do, though under a more forgiving timetable, it'd be nice to have a year or more, multiple years to just devote to language study. And, but this is actually a problem that's quite common to the um, to higher education recently because there's now in a lot of programs a increasing pressure to graduate within five or six years. Whereas it used to be if you were doing anthropology, they would let you spend ten years never finishing your
0: dissertation. I'm and sure so, your wife <laughs> is very happy that you're gonna be out in five years though.
2: Right, right. So, and so like the benefit is that you're forced to to get your act together, but one of the drawbacks is that um it, it makes it more difficult to, um, to really take the time to get the kind of really thorough preparation that would be ideal and so lacking ideal one does what is most immediately practical for them to be able to do their research.
0: Mm. And how necessary is it for you to, to, to use Kiswahili versus using a translator? If if you could drop some anthropological theory on us.
2: Well, I mean, it, it, in the ideal situation, um, you have to really know the language very, very well to be able to make a valid claim about the, the kinds of meanings that people have about experience. Um, when you work through translators, a lot is lost. and And a lot is lost not just because of the fact that the interpreter might have their own interpretation, that they'll, they might change things, they might um, add their own interpretation to what people say, but also because certain nuances of language that describe things that you would not know unless you spoke that language, those get lost. And so when one works with an interpreter, one is making a conscious choice about what kind of information they can get and what kind of information they don't get. and and of course, like I said, like in in many cases, what one does is based on on practicality. Um, I mean, a, a good a good comparison for this is say in the in China studies during the Cold War, a lot of um, American anthropologists who wanted to study China and could speak Mandarin were unable to go to um, to the, the People's Republic of China during the Cold War. They were unable to go, and so they had to go to Taiwan as a proxy for Chinese culture, but the problem was is those who wanted to do um, village studies had the problem that most of the people um, in rural communities did not speak Mandarin on a day to day basis they spoke uh, Taiwanese and many of them either had to then learn Taiwanese on top of the Mandarin they knew or would have to work with um, local interpreters from those communities and so, I mean, it, it, in, in my situation, I um, have, I'm working on both ends. And what I mean by that is, I am sort of, like I said, I'm, I'm working on, I'm t- basically teaching myself Kiswahili over this year. Um, I've gotten a bunch of books, I have lots of tapes, lots of CDs. Um, and I plan to be taking you know, intensive courses in Tanzania when I um, begin my fieldwork um, for the first few months before I actually. Begin actual actual field work, Um, but but um, I mean, there's like like I said, one has to um, do the research with with the kinds of uh, resources that's available to them. But they have to know that the claims that they make depends a lot on how they were able to communicate with the people they were communicating with, and it's important to be very upfront about that. When one is presenting findings that claim to represent what people think about issues.
1: While we're still talking about methodology, um, I wonder, especially coming at this as um, as an anthropologist, what are what what's the list of or what is the criteria that's used to determine whether um, your research is you know empirically sound or not. In political science, my field, we focus heavily on, um, on the methodology and making sure that, you know, there it's, um, your, that your research is, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, duplicatable, I think that's the word. Um, but that you can, you know, that you can actually, you can duplicate the research, make sure that you can, you can disprove the research or disprove the results. And, um, and then, good heavens, my methodology teacher would be so disappointed in me right now. Um, but we have parameters that we follow to to ensure that our research is within our area um, considered empirical. What are those parameters for um, for
2: anthropology? Yeah, this is this is often an ongoing <laughs> debate that I'm always part of.
0: So settle um, it now. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it, I mean it's, it's often the case that um, anthropologists, um, because we rely primarily on ethnography as our way of um, generating knowledge about the world, um, there's it, always sort of a defensiveness that we have to deal with in which we, because, I mean, basically, I think there's a perception um, among non-anthropologists that anthropologists just write, tell stories in the sense that, okay, that's a nice story, but, you know, can I replicate it? Can I prove it? Um, you know, does it have validity? And you know, what's your end? How many people? And and the thing is, these kinds of questions do unfold in anthropology. But the but the sort of the main issue with the idea of um, doing ethnography is that what by being in a fieldwork situation for an extended length of time, one is able to Be surprised by things that one was not originally looking for, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, like one one example of this is I think the way way I think of it is that if other social sciences focus very much on finding methodologies that allow them to isolate variables in order to determine causal relationships, and where the goal is to try to think through. Isolating variables and, th- and try to think past the confound. What I think what's called confounding variables. When one is in an yeah. ethnographic context, one is in a situation where one is able to see those variables confound each other on a day-to-day basis. And what that produces is not necessarily replic- repl- replicable information, but rather it shows the importance of context. I think in a way that is not opposed to other approaches but helps contextualize those approaches. So I don't really see, um, I, I see them complementary in sort of the larger production of social science knowledge in terms of um, sort of pr- what, what, makes, what makes a sound ethnography. I think it's extremely important that when one produces work that's based on ethnographic research to be as transparent as possible about how they did their research and how they came to the kinds of observations that they had. I mean, there's often, I mean, this is a difficult kind of balance to do in, you know, a 30-page article. This is where books are much more helpful. Yeah. But when, when I read ethnographies or works written by anthropologists, the way I usually evaluate these things is I ask, okay, how is this person making this particular claim? This is interesting theoretically, but why were you thinking that? Where were you? Who were you talking to? At what time? you are talking to them and I, and the more c- situated detail the better more valid it is to me I mean there's a class of way of talking about anthropologies where the um, the anthropologist themselves is the instrument of research the relationships they have the experiences they have where they were who they were talking to um, their own backgrounds and understandings and I think as the more transparent those things are in a piece the more valid it is to me but I, I don't think of it in terms of being able to replicate because because things can change so much no two anthropologists will have the same experience in the same place and so it's it was often a common practice in the 1980s of um newer generations of anthropologists sort of revisiting the classic eth- ethnographies of the 30s and 40s by going back to those places and seeing things seeing how things had changed over the last over, over those 40 years and so anthropologists kind of operate according to the, the belief that things are always going to be in flux, and that therefore we're less concerned about things being replicable and more concerned about things being plausible and making sense based on the evidence that's presented if that if that makes sense.
0: Hey, Derek, can we yes. talk about the roles of anecdotes versus data in sort of Africa china studies mm-hmm. um, it, it basically, it seems that it's really easy to find someone who shares your particular view not not you as an individual but but the, the, but anybody who anybody who has an idea of China Africa relations you can find somebody in an African country who will share that opinion and if you interview them you know your article or your or your research is finished basically is, is that true
2: <laughs> yeah I mean this sort of relates to what I was saying earlier about what counts to me as good ethnographic data versus bad ethnographic data is this when it's sort of contextualizing anecdotes and stories. I mean, I think the problem with, I mean, there's, there are good ways to think about anecdotes and there are bad ways to think about anecdotes. I think the bad way to think about anecdotes is the way most people think about anecdotes when they think of anecdotes as being bad sources of information. And that is, as what you said, is you can find anyone to support the theory or conclusion that you already have. And then as soon as you meet them and they articulate that, I'm done, you know, great, you can go home. (laughs) And I think the problem is in these cases that when anecdotes are taken to be emblematic of the phenomena under, under question, right? And so if one is looking for a story about um, China is, China's economic involvement in, in other countries, um, namely um, sub-Saharan African countries, has economic benefits, and you speak and talk to someone who tells you about, oh, yeah, you know, they're building roads, they're you know, they're, they're building things a lot faster than if, um, local contractors were building them. This is great. Okay. That anecdote has, might be used to conclude that there is a generally positive image of Chinese in Africa. On the other hand, if you speak to that same person, maybe later that day, and this is actually based on my own experience, they might say the complete opposite. And they might say, you know, there's so much, um, the, the, the goods that we're buying in the marketplace will fall apart in a week. You know, these, this is the classic story. Okay, which anecdote is the more emblematic? The problem is neither of them can be taken as emblematic. And just simply putting both of them together and saying, oh, it's very complicated, <laughs> that, that itself it doesn't, it doesn't really um, end, end the issue. I think what's more interesting is when anecdotes are contextualized. Um, and there's two ways to do this. One is when one is, has done a lot of field work and has had the ability to speak to many people in many different situations, one is in a better position to sort of of, of think about a particular story or event in relationship to everything that they already know. Hmm. And so this is often, and this is really important because when writing ethnography, for example, it's very easy to sort of, one has to use, we call it ethnographic vignettes, right? Sort of little passages that exemplify a particular thing that we have observed and it's very easy to look at those vignettes and say okay well this is just a short vignette how does this prove or suggest what you're trying to say but what gives that vignette validity is when it's grounded in a longer period of research and one can say this is more or less consistent with many things that I have heard but more interesting I think is the anecdotes that people themselves tell each other, so stories that circulate about um, trans-African encounters are themselves interesting pieces of data. <laughs> and so, rumors—I f- I find you know rumors are very fascinating, and it's really fun to to do one or two things: trace rumors and also ask people about rumors and try and get people's different opinions on rumors. <laughs> and so, I think we were talking before about um, a story that I heard from a colleague of mine that he had heard from. I have a Tanzanian colleague of mine um, who is also studying for anthropology here at Brown. And this is actually the story of how I became involved in this research, actually. Um, when he started telling me about um, Chinese doing business in Tanzania, is he told me that people that he met in Kiriko were complaining that the Chinese were selling cassava. And that the story the story was that um, they're violating a boundary in terms of what people sell that even the Germans and the British did not violate. And I thought, well, this is a very interesting story, right? This is an interesting anecdote. the kind that one often finds in a lot of, um, reporting on China, Africa as, as a general topic. And then when I went to, uh, Dar es Salaam in August, I did not see anybody who was trying to selling cassava. Um, <laughs> And, not, and more than that, I saw no kind of economic activity that would suggest that that would even be possible. Um, most of the Chinese that I met in that area were selling, were wholesalers, and they were selling shoes. They were selling um, uh, artificial flowers, selling cloth, selling plumbing, n- nothing involving cassava. So I just thought, okay, this is just another one of those rumors that I can just say is not, it's not true, right? Well, what's interesting is um, I, I was having um, tea with a... Um, uh, a man who works for a Chinese construction company, uh, and he he works for a very large company, and he's not a wholesaler. Uh, and I was telling him this story, and I thought he was going to say, "Oh yeah, that's a ridiculous story." But he actually tried to entertain its logic, to try to entertain if it was possible what would it mean. And he said, "Well, okay, maybe what happened is the friend you were talking about saw this man on one particular day where he was selling cassava." in order to make up for a slow business period. He thought, well, maybe this guy was having trouble with his business, and he thought, okay, I can get through the next few weeks if I I sell some cassava. And then after that, he goes back to his normal business. And that the only thing that, and basically my, my friend's friend saw this that one day, and then made the conclusion that the Chinese are selling cassava. Now, what's interesting to me is not whether that actually was the case or not, but simply the way that he was trying to interpret why that would make sense. And he's using it as an example of um, Chinese entrepreneurial kind of ethics. It's like, oh, well, you know, here's what the Chinese will do in order to survive. And so it's, what's interesting is the anecdotes is not so much their truth of value, really, but rather what these stories do for people who tell them. And so I'm fascinated by anecdotes, but I'd, I would never consider anecdotes themselves to be emblematic of, um, of uh, a larger conclusion about what is actually happening. And this is important because as... And as someone who does anthropology, and as someone who has to rely on experiences and things I see, I have to always as every anthropologist does, have to police themselves about what they're saying and really evaluate okay well what by telling this story what am, what kind of story am I telling and so it requires a, a very large degree of reflexivity about how one uses evidence that I think um, unfortunately a lot of the way anecdotes about Chinese African counters I use don't they don't engage as much in that reflexive kind of act that I think is really needed in order to properly place anecdotes in a proper context.
0: Yeah, I I remember one of the first things I told like one of the first conversations we had was when I told you the anecdote that I heard from this dude who was up in Kenya um, and he saw a Chinese. Guy selling uh, peanuts on the side of the road in Nairobi, and then a Kenyan dude yelling at him, "Why did you move all the way from China to Kenya to sell peanuts?" <laughs> and and then after I told you that story, then you told me this whole spiel you just did about the role of anecdote, and I felt so stupid. No, uh, no, but but, 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 you're, but no, she, you're right. It's yeah. not whether it's true or not. It's it's the value we place on them, the 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 whether they're emblematic, and and right. there's a whole layer of of, of questions that have to be asked with them that, that after talking to you made me go back and, and reflect uh, on that. I, I only brought that up because you're also like a China-Africa dude in, in East Africa. Not that this is the first story I tell all China-Africa people.
2: <laughs> right. Well, what I, what, I, what, I, what I mean is interesting is that these anecdotes, anecdotes don't discriminate in terms of um, social class, education, or background. I mean, everyone tells funny anecdotes. Which I, which I think is really interesting because I I, I, hear, I first heard this anecdote from um, my colleague of mine, who is also, you know, also an anthropologist and he's also working with stories other people are telling. So I think it's we're kind of we're awash with anecdotes because we're very, pretty much we're story t- we're a storytelling species, and I think it's what's important is to sort of recognize that, but and also to sort of also think critically about that. So I mean the thing is I would not dispute what your friend saw. Your friend saw what he saw, right? The question is, then how do we understand that? And what kind of questions do we ask of that? And what kind of conclusions do we make of that?
0: So, Man, you are so professorial right now. <laughs> just get your PhD, and you should be just teaching some people. <laughs> still far. Still
2: long, long, long time away. <laughs>
1: oh, it'll, it'll, it'll be. For you, it'll be. But I want to learn in the field, and I also, I mean, I wrote a dissertation that was great. If I never have to do that again... I probably also will be okay
0: <laughs> uh,
1: but um, that's just me
0: <laughs> Um. Uh, oh sure uh, Dr. Kalu
1: well, you're alright with that
0: you don't want to ask a juicy question
1: it wasn't juicy it was going to be about his peace well,
0: that's a juicy question
1: well in that case I'm asking the juicy question
0: ask the juicy right. question are
1: you ready for the juicy question ahead. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Could you talk a little bit, bit of um, about? Huh? Could you talk a little bit about your piece, unthinking and then rethinking the relevance of China Africa? Um, some small notes on the wholesale retail trade in Uganda and Tanzania that you wrote for our sponsor, the Africa Daily. What was it about? How did you research it? And do you want to add anything to it?
2: Right. Um, that piece probably has a – the title was probably too long. It's, it's but, too damn long, yes. <laughs> I love the title, but it's really It's very academic,
1: long. though. That's what we do.
2: But um, well, basically, I, I wrote the piece on invitation um, uh, from uh, the Africa Daily. Um, I, had not originally, I was not originally planning to write anything uh, about the, the field trip that I took um, last summer. Um, to prepare for my dissertation research, and so it's not it 's not a peer reviewed piece um, and that 's why you know I really emphasize it, about it being preliminary and basically, I was just going to make a, I was making a simple point i mean it 's a simple point that 's often made, but it 's always worth repeating and I think that point is that in talking about um, african chinese chinese african relationships in in different contexts whether it's, it's in Uganda or in Tanzania or Nigeria or elsewhere. Um, it's to sort of avoid assuming that every issue of difference is going to fall along the axis of the Chinese side and the other side, um, be that the Ugandan side or elsewhere.
0: Could and, you give some context about the about the about some of the stories you told and, and why that ha- why that didn't happen?
2: Right, and so, bas- so basically, one of the stories that emerged, um, when I was in Kampala was that the overseas Chinese association, um, there that has, that has been in running since, um, the early two thousands, um, had a fairly good relationship with the, um, Kampala city traders association. And that, um, the story I was told by some people was that, whereas, um, maybe six years ago, there was a lot of conflict uh, among traders about the kind of economic activity Chinese would be doing. So for example, um, Chinese were there to be wholesalers, but there were accusations that they were also involved in retailing. And um, there were a lot of complaints about these. And the Overseas Association worked with the um Kampala City traders Association to try to as, as, and this is the story they tell. Again, this is why you know it's very preliminary. This is just based on um, the story that I was told by people involved in the overseas association and in the um, Kampala Cities Trades Association, that they tried to work together to tell the Chinese to those who were inv- involved in trade to only do wholesaling and not do retailing. And that over several years, this, they were fairly successful. I mean, there were other factors as well that um, led to them Led to that economic activity changing, but the reason why I wanted to highlight this particular story was that it showed a, a, an example of cooperation in an area that, when is often spoken of in um, in reporting on China Africa, often talks about conflict or irresolvable conflict. And here was an example, so it seemed, um, at least on the surface level, of organizations working together to 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 resolve these problems and when i was speaking to the um the head of the Compolicy trade association he was insisting to me that um that they identify themselves as a community representing business not representing ugandans or chinese now again this is one interview right i can't say that this necessarily is the case all the way down but it, but it's interesting that this is a way that they are positioning themselves is that we you know we're a business we we have common interests as businessmen 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 and women um, vis-a-vis the Ugandan state and that includes and they, and they welcome Chinese members into um, into the Compaq Trade Association so to, to me that was interesting and I thought it was worth sh- um, sharing a little of that story but um, but then again I think what's important is that it looks different from Different positions, right? Uh, so if you're if, if you're a wholesaler, if you're you got in wholesaler, and here and I learned more about this when I was in um, Tanzania, is that if you're a wholesaler, your views of Chinese wholesale is going to be very different than if you're a retailer. And the reasons for that is you know it's, it's fairly uh, straightforward. It's if you're a retailer, you're able to buy goods in bulk at a much cheaper price than what than you might have been able to before, and one is able to open up small businesses based on buying um, cheap shoes from Chinese wholesalers. Like when I was in Dar es Salaam, I was able to watch every morning, around eight, um, the uh, young men who would go to the different um, sh- shops and work together to buy um, barrels of shoes that they would then take to different parts of the city to then sell on the street as informal traders. And so it's giving them an opportunity that they would not have had before. But if you speak to the wholesalers, they're not all happy about the Chinese. They consider them; they consider the um, Chinese wholesalers to be forcing them to stay in Tanzania and not travel to Guangzhou to buy shoes directly and that they're being forced into retailing. Now, so, and this is something that's also been discussed by people like uh, Susan Sheld in, in Senegal. And the reason why this is, you know, it's a very simple story, but the reason why it's so important to, to sort of emphasize is that um, when... China, and and this is a point that's made again and again, so I'll just make it again, but whenever China and Africa, in, in caps, is spoken of, it's as if there is an entity, a single entity called China, or a single entity called Africa, which is itself extremely problematic, or a single entity called Uganda, or a single entity called Tanzania, which then interact on either equal or unequal terms. And then people ask, well, is it benefit? Does it not benefit? But whereas when you break it down to the, all the different people, whether it's a large, um, Chinese state-owned corporation, or whether it's a small wholesale trader, whether it's a, um, a migrant into Dar es Salaam or a migrant into Kampala who's then able to go into retailing, or whether it's a wholesaler who's already fairly middle class who's then competing with Chinese, it's going to look different from every situation that you're involved in. And, and then when I say so, when I say unthinking, I mean it's in order to really get any um, grasp of these issues, is, it's important to kind of think of these things beyond oh, my God, there's Chinese and they are Africans together. Oh, my God, look at that. I mean, I think a lot of that fascination comes from that sense that this is somehow a unique, distinct relationship that's going to have its own distinct properties in comparison with other relationships between groups that have come from outside the continent. But when I say, but when I say um, rethinking, it's, it then goes back to the idea that um, how are these encounters – how do these encounters then – lead back to sort of larger claims about China and Africa. And so someone who is benefiting directly economically from um, doing trade with the Chinese might say, oh, well, you know, this is the Chinese have great benefits um, because the, um, look at the opportunities they're given people like me and people like me. I remember one person told me in Tanzania that every boda boda, every motorcycle <laughs> imported into Tanzania is a job. <laughs> Right, because, because basically you're able to turn into a taxi service. And so every imported bicycle is one job. And so the Chinese um, bring jobs, basically, when they bring motorcycles into, into Tanzania. But on the other hand, um, if someone's talking about the shoe they bought that they're not satisfied with, they're going to tell a completely different story. <laughs> and and, and, and but, again, but, this is, but this is life, I and mean, this is how people are. It's very, very contradictory. But what's problematic is when the basic fact of contradictions in life turn into sort of broad claims about what China is doing in Africa. And I think that's where the problem comes from. And so, um, so I just I just wrote that piece as a very simple um, kind of observation that it's, it's said, but I feel like it just has to keep being reset. But I'm 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 open to be challenged about that piece because, like I said, it's it's only based on very short-term uh, preliminary field work. And so, I would I would be excited actually to have. People um, challenge claims and arguments
0: in that. <laughs> I'm not going to challenge you, but I want to say, <laughs> so basically somebody can ask you to write a piece for them on their website and you're going to do that? Because, man, I got a blog <laughs> and it's just sitting in empty and Dr. Kalu and I are always looking for people to help us out.
2: I, I, it's, it's, I have a – it's funny. For a very long time, everyone's been encouraging me to, to write to, – to blog, basically. I, ha- I have an uncle who's – very involved in it and internet commerce and for a very long time he's been saying derek you have to blog you have to blog you have to blog but i never quite do that because i'm always i'm always hyper conscious about what i'm going to put out there (laughs) and so i always think so much about what i'm going to publish that i then don't publish it but and it's interesting because i feel with um online communication the pace of information is so quick that it's really hard to then sort of sit down and really take time to really think things over. On the other hand, anthropology, I think, is too slow. So ethnographies, for example, the the time between fieldwork and publication are usually about 15 to 20 years. The dissertation falls in between. So if you see a book come out now in anthropology in 2014, there's a good chance that that fieldwork was done in the late 90s. Right, and so the the pace is very, very slow. So I think it is important to sort of be able to be engaged in different, different media. <laughs> it, is that so a that, nice
0: way of you saying you're not going to write something for me? No, I mean I think I... I uh, for us, for Dr. Kalu <laughs> and I. Sorry. No, we, we we can talk more about that. <laughs> I, I I totally understand where you're coming from, and I, okay. and, I and I and I respect that. And what, so one of the things that actually kind of shocked me was the amount of people I met at ASA who like frankly did not want to come on on the podcast because they felt they weren't far enough in their research they felt they had anything to say and i thought man that's so nice of them wow look at look at that 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 humility i mean or they could have just you know just not want to be in the podcast but in 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 all likelihood like i a lot of people are like i don't want to get anything out there that that i'm not really sure about that i haven't really put you know the, the the maximum amount of 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 time, <laughs> effort, and 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 context in. And, and, well, you yeah. know I mean, I mean, like, uh, I, you know, I was like hiding from you for a couple of months. <laughs> no, no, it's I, I'm I'm joking. So like, be, between, I yeah. mean, there's a ton of stuff out there that will like gladly take your stuff. So I'm just trying to poach you before they get to you. But you know, that's all right. Do do what is good for you and your career. And if if that means it's not blogging, then you know, don't blog. <laughs> there was a. But there was actually, I think, a tiff in terms of, like, international relations where, like, they said, like, people in, in IR professors should not be blogging or something like that. Oh, I'll, have to, I'll have to check. Um, so, yeah, it's digital humanities or social science. Interesting stuff. Well, I mean, but the thing is,
2: blogging also poses dilemmas for anthropologists, I think, because as, a, as social scientists, um, in the United States, we have to do the IRB. The yes, yes, report, yes, yes. Which yes. means that... There's a confidentiality that's involved with doing research, and these things were formulated before the age of digital communications. And so there actually doesn't, it actually is a legal ambiguity about what one does with fieldwork data when one is distributed it in non-academic sources. So when one puts on their experiences on a blog, is that protected in the same way in terms of liability as an interview you put into – into an academic article, and this is a dilemma because journalists are not bound by the IRB, right? And so it's very hard to. But in order to engage in these conversations, you have to be able to put things out there. And so I think it's it's something that's going to be it's, it's sort of the issue is still being worked out. And so I mean, this is this is one reason why I'm like when I'm talking now, I'm i to spend so much on the issue of like methodology
0: and theory and less on names places dates. <laughs> well, I I mean we we generally don't do methodology and theory so like All the right. stuff you're going on here I and and some of the claims that, that you're making and, and and the way you kind of um, couch couch what you say in, in these in these broader questions I think is really important something our audience should really really be thinking about. I on the other hand totally shoot my mouth off all the damn time, so...
2: <laughs> but, uh, that's the
0: thing, but, but, you, but you're not affiliated with an academic institution, so you're, you're okay. That thing is about if you're in an in institution, yeah. <laughs> so... And, and Dr. Kalu, you're going to be affiliated with, I don't know, at least sort of the Nigerian government soon, right?
1: When I, when I talk about my research and the work that I've done, because I had to go through um, IRC training and all that wonderful stuff. Um, And you know, in getting like my research process and everything, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Approved. And one of the things I have to do, I have to keep doing for, I think, another three or four years, is now carry around the um, like all the informed consent forms and my data. It's all because it was you know promised confidentiality to my interview subjects. But you have to be as a as a researcher. I'm ethically bound. To protecting the identities of the people that I researched and interviewed with, and um into making um making claims or or making statements and what's going on, I also have to make sure that ethically what I'm saying is you know supported by the data or supported by or triangulated in some way, shape or form, and not just you know some flight of fancy. But it's there's so many different labels that make it or levels of of thought and complexity. Um you know, I'm not using that as a cop out, but it's actually a reality of what we do that makes it very difficult for for a researcher to make use of forums like um like blogging with regards to the work that they're doing. What I see with my other colleagues from graduate school that do blog is um Reaction pieces usually to um, news and information that's recently available, but not a lot of it is like direct work off of their dissertation, or it might be an op-ed that would be um, based off of their experiences and in some ways tied to like their field of study, but it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be a direct, um, what's what I'm looking for, like a a direct write-up or an article or journal piece that's as you wouldn't have something that formal be blogged about. Um, and that's something that, you know, we do have to be careful about. And with some of the happenings um, recently, I think it, I'm going to say University of Kansas, where there's a lot of a lot of debate as to what can and can't be done on social media um, as an academic. And um, I think they changed the laws in the state of Kansas, making it possible for um, professors to be based on what they put on social media, if it doesn't agree with what the chancellor of a university believes or or what other leading people believe. It's, it's very controversial. I'm not trying to take a stance on the issue. But um, there is now a move to police the work and, and, and the, the activity of, of um, academics and professors on social media. And that, again, is going to continue to stifle um, and I think we'll limit what can and will be done. And these are some, these are conversations that we need to have as academics on, on how we address the needs and the current trends in um, information provision and information publishing um, on the interwebs. That's my two cents. I don't know. Derek, do you agree? Disagree? Have at it.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think I completely, completely agree. I think it's just interesting. Because it's such an unfolding kind of, um, of, of issue. And I, and, Frankly, people haven't had the chance to really think through these things because of the pace. But, um, but at the same time, there's such an importance of, of getting things out there, you know, so sort of that publish or perish mentality, that it's often becoming more and more important, it seems, to have a presence that people are able to search when, when you're doing research. Um, I wish I would prefer the shark in the water approach, <laughs> <in> which no <laughs> one knows what I'm doing until until one, you know, presents their, uh, dissertation. Um, but, but just given the sort of the political economy of uh, scholarship these days, it, one feels the pressure to introduce oneself and have one's name out there. So that people are familiar with you and know, have a general sense of what one is doing in terms of research so that when one does publish, um, one knows that they're coming, right? Yeah. And when one knows what they're doing, but but at the same time, again, like you said, it's just putting out academic work in full on blogs. I mean, but that opens up a whole other debate about open access and paywalls, which I don't, yeah. don't want to go into. But that's a huge debate within anthropology at the moment, as in other fields, about whether the payroll, the paywall structure, is still valid. But I don't know enough to really make a informed comment on it.
1: I mean and and I mean and uh, the truth of the matter is that you know things differ by by um by program and by university. Um like my university for instance requires that um all of the like all of all of the dissertations of PhD students are immediately made available online, open access, um, on digital comments, which has then meant that for a lot of PhD students um, unless if you're able to get a special exemption to um to preserve your work, it's going to be difficult for a lot of students that are coming out of my university to publish their work and you know, try to reap some financial benefit from it. Um, while a number of other schools, um, I think I was talking to a friend who um who goes to an, a school that's out in California and they have an embargo. And so for three years after their dissertation, They're given, you know, they're given three years to try and market and publish their dissertation um, before, in order to try and, you know, make some money off of it. And that's that's the other part of the conversation, because um, information has an economic value as well. And as academics, that's something we have to take into consideration because we also need to eat. But before we make a whole new extended podcast on that, I'll probably stop here. Well, um, I mean, this has been such a great conversation, and I think we've touched, we touched on a number of different aspects of doing research and, and the whole umbrella of China-Africa relations that, that need to be discussed and aren't discussed often enough. Is there anything else you would like to add as we round up this conversation?
2: Um, I think that in the next few years, there's going to be very good dissertations coming out based on extended ethnographic research in, on, on this topic. Um, and they've, and it's been a long time coming, but I, I know of several people who are doing great work in different places, and it's going to be, I mean, this year is the year of the, uh, I guess the, what is it, the Africans in Guangzhou documentary. I think the next year will be the, the year of the ethnographic dissertations on the topic, and so there's going to be a lot of good stuff coming out.
0: Can't wait to get my hands on them after I get some sort of, you know, library card, Library of Congress stuff to, to read this stuff. Hey, if you're not in a university system, it's hard to read this stuff. Right. You guys are lucky.
2: Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a big problem.
0: But no, that's, that, sounds, that sounds just tremendous. Uh, the, all, the, all the PhDs um, coming out, the dissertations coming out. All right. Why don't we move on to recommendations? And uh, Derek, why don't why don't you lead?
2: Right. Um, an article that I would recommend, but having just discussed about the paywalls, I don't know um, how available this is actually at the moment. Um, it's an article written by uh, Jamie Munson and Stephanie Rupp from last year, on basically um, talking about ethnographic research on. Africa, China, China, Africa. And it covers a lot, I think, of important issues, some of which we've discussed here. And it's just a, it's just a really nice overview of um, sort of situating ethnography in, in, the, in the larger field. And I recommend it because, according to Google, it has not yet been cited. I mean, it only came out in, uh, I think, in the, in the May of last year. So I, I would highly recommend that. And, uh, um, the The other piece I... I would recommend is not related to um, the the topic, but um, it's something cool that I read last night, and so it's it's on my mind at the moment. Uh, David Graeber, who's a fairly famous uh, anthropologist now because of his uh, involvement in Occupy Wall Street, he wrote an interesting piece on a journal I have never heard of before called The Baffler, where he talks about um, play in evolution and about the idea that animals play and that. The notion of play might say something more broadly about the meaning of consciousness. It's 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 it's, 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 it's it'll, it'll blow your mind, and it's it's a it's a fun uh, it's a fun piece.
0: <laughs> wow. I I am gonna I'm definitely gonna take a look at both of them, and I yeah <laughs> we're gonna link to that. Dr. Kalu, what about yourself?
1: because my recommendation, the first one is a good. Um, Counter to your recommendation, and uh, then, do you want um, me, do
0: you want me to go first? Then yes, please. Okay, all right. So, two recommendations, uh, and and I'm mostly going off titles, but they're they're decent. So the first one is uh, China's Aid to Africa: Monster or Messiah by um, uh, uh, Sun Yin for the it's it's like a for the Brookings Institute blog, uh, and the. Basically, it talks about Chinese aid towards Africa and, and how how difficult it is to kind of quantify it, and also that you can't necessarily look at it in this sort of binary set that it's complicated. Uh, and And so for, for me, I, I liked it. it mostly for the title. The title I loved, um, really clever title. And then another one I I would like to recommend is. Uh, Once again, based off the title, more or less, China, the Death Star of Emerging Markets (laughs) by William Pesic on Bloomberg Opinion. And it's basically talking about just... uh, Can you cue the music for that? (laughs) Oh, wait, no. Actually, we'll get sued. You didn't hear any of that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So so basically, just talking about how uh, China's slowing economy, according to, what is it, Charlene Chu... It, it, and what that's going to mean for, for emerging markets. And sadly, there's not that many Star Wars references. I think there's any Star Wars references in the piece. Uh, I, may, I may have to uh, recheck it. Um, because basically, like, if if I had written something like that, I would I would be all up on X-Wings and TIE Fighters and the role of contractors in the Death Star, which is something I've... I, I, you know what? Those are my recommendations. I'm not gonna get into Death Star and Star Wars, with you guys. Um, <laughs> so Dr. Kalu, I've given you my recommendations, so react to them.
1: Uh, then. Michael um, and Suzuki Shogo. Um, and it's called Why Do we Busting in the Say of Section? temporary China and this is available to everyone outside, like J store or your typical Um, um, congregators or people that put them together. Wow, Nchem, way to use your higher education there. Um, But what's really quite fascinating is that they they explore the use of a Western narrative that presents China as a threat to Africa and how that has affected how we view China and how... um, Perhaps we need to, um, is that it's important to look at the, the growing interaction between China and Africa beyond, um, the framework of Western strategic interests, um, on the continent. It's a really great piece. Um, I definitely recommend it and it is available to
0: everyone. Um, and that doesn't react to any of my recommendations.
1: Recommendations need to just calm down. That's pretty much what it says and not be so dramatic But uh, my final recommendation because I like to end on a high is um, hashtag NBC fail because the Winter Olympics are here and um, We get to watch people from all over the world be amazing And I think that the Olympics and other such global sporting competitions are a great opportunity to um, to view the world differently And so,
0: does NBC fail imply that NBC's coverage is not good of the Olympics? Because I just want to make make out the Cowboys and Rice podcast does not actually want NBC to fail.
1: No, um, NBC has had a history of colorful coverage of um, of big sporting events such as the Olympics, and um, and and again, thanks to the instant. Nature of the um, of the internet, a lot of people have taken to keeping track of what happens on NBC. Thus, the hashtag #NBCFail. One of the one of the more interesting things that's come out of #NBCFail so far um, has been the way that Russia has been referred to um, in the dialogue. A number of people have felt that there's a the thing in the use of language around Russia is very similar to um, the sort of Cold war. Um, I mean, with regards to international relations, that's quite fascinating. But I, I recommend this hashtag more for the comedic um, aspect than for the, the IR aspect, but also the IR aspect is quite interesting.
0: Okay, perfect. Once again, Cowboys and Rice does not want NBC to fail and is not no, laughing no, 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 at no. NBC. Just want to make... want
1: We're not... Yeah, it's not an endorsement or, or non-endorsement. It's just an observation.
0: Okay. Thank you. Yes, I'm just trying to make sure, you know... NBC,
1: you're cool. I about... like NBC.
0: Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, before we sign off, Derek, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a website or Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Um,
2: for this for this occasion, I have reactivated my Twitter account. <laughs> what? <laughs> and and I might be using it. Um, it's at Caridus, um At K E R E D U S. Care to explain where the name comes from? Um, you'll notice that uh, if you reverse some of the letters, it says Derek. <laughs> or part of it says Derek,
0: which is my first name. So basically, there's like. The Riddler. You're like a Batman villain.
2: Long, long, long this, basically the story of it is this: is that when I was in, I think it was, might have been freshman English class in high school. I can't remember. <laughs> we had an assignment to write an epic poem about our about something um, in the style of Greek epic poetry. I don't remember very well, but I needed a Greek name, so I just tried to invent a pseudo Greek name <laughs> by reversing the letters of my name and adding a U.S. So it sounded vaguely mythical. And it just stuck as an online identity since then.
0: Perfect. <laughs> that that's actually that's actually pretty darn cool. I, so I'm looking. It looks like you have three tweets, and you tweeted back in <laughs> September. <laughs> September when? Oh, well, at 2010. <laughs> this this is like this is like four years
2: old. Yeah, September 2010 was not today, so it might have been very different. <laughs> I don't know
0: what what did I say. <laughs> All right, uh, you have three <laughs> tweets, and I'm going to read them out for you. One, I am here. Oh. <laughs> Two, you have, you have a link to a Mashable status. I'm not even going to open that because it might just be like, I don't even know.
1: Archived. <laughs> and, I don't remember um, one, yeah.
0: And, oh, from, and the last, you retweeted from Mashable a more organic way to organize the web's content. You're following 103 people, and one pe- one person's following you. I'm following too many people, so I'm still trying to figure out. But if I, I, because you've been a guest, I'm gonna bump off somebody and I'm gonna follow you. But yeah, this is
2: good I'll, luck I'll, with the
0: reactivation, activation, Derek. I'll, I'll I'll start saying more. I mean, I, it's funny because I there's, there's
2: a great Onion article actually uh, that came out a while ago, where basically the headline was um, web, route, "Web Web Surfer." Doesn't really want to share that article. <laughs> it's like you, sometimes you read an article and you don't want to share it, but now there's, such a, you have to share things now. So I'll, I'll, I will start sharing
0: things more. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that, all right, that's that's great. Sorry to put you on the spot. I, uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, but yeah, we, I look forward to interacting with you on on, on Twitter. Um, Dr. Kalu, how do people find you?
1: I I um I'm on Twitter at nchemi and I blog at cowriesrice.blogspot.com and also at nkemkalu.wordpress.com.
0: Perfect. Um, yeah, I, I I made sure that people know a little about you on the old Follow Friday, so Dr. Kalu, you know, her Twitter game is pretty good, so you should, you should be following her. Uh, as for myself, I can be found on uh, cowriesrice.blogspot.com where... Basically, we're putting up stuff about once a week uh, based off our podcast that we're going to try and and expand a little more. If anybody wants to write for us, hint, hint, Derek, we'll be happy to put it on. Um, My Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, where not only am I tweeting China African News or China News or Africa News, but I'm starting to maybe do a little bit of analysis or opinion. And hopefully... Uh, I don't anger too many people, especially people who might potentially sponsor us in the future, like NBC.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, and that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank Derek for joining us. This it used to be the morning, now it's the afternoon, in um in in Brown, uh, where the snow is melting. We would like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. Uh, also there's a uh, documentary for the Africa Daily happening later today that I don't know you might be interested in watching it's going to be digitally streamed so you are not have to hours. Be in, two hours from now two hours from now yes um, there's no way I'm going to upload this in two hours <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just want to show the Africa Daily that I tried <laughs> uh, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud Stitcher and iTunes uh, we've applied to put it up on Blackberry yet get to hear back um, uh, we would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing a theme song. I would also like to really point out that Dr. Kalu is a genius, and if you are looking for a smart person to work for you, you should be really looking at her and contact me because I have a resume on file. <laughs> and thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.